We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hey, everyone. We wanted to tell you about one of our favorite podcasts about writing, Writing Excuses. It's called Writing Excuses. This is a short-form weekly podcast about the craft and business of writing, much like Right Minded. It's hosted by my friend, the writer Mary Robinette Cowell, and then five other writers and publishers, Dan Wells, Howard Taylor, Aaron Roberts, and Dong Wan Song. Each week since 2008, this podcast has shared advice, stories, and homework assignments designed to help you keep writing. And special for NaNoWriMo this November, Writing Excuses is airing five episodes that focus on the novel writing process. So they'll, they'll talk about inciting incidents, multi-thread plots, the three-quarters problem, and emotional resolution, among dozens of other things, of course. So give it a listen. Thank you. Hello, NaNoWriMo writers, horror writers, gothic writers, magical realists, and scary writers of all kinds. I'm Grant Faulkner, executive director of the organization that is perhaps responsible for more scary moments than any other on the planet. Scary moments on the page, that is, especially during National Novel Writing Month, which is happening now. And I'm here with my very unhorrific co-host, Brooke Warner. And, and since this is the season for scary movies and scary costumes and scary visits to the proverbial pumpkin patch, we're celebrating the horrors genre by talking with Isabel Cañas, a NaNoWriMo writer who is getting a lot of acclaim for her gothic novels. And, and Brooke, I recently read that Latinx gothic novels are trendy these days. <laughs> the New York Times uh, reported that a conspicuous number of Latinx women writers are using fantasy, horror, and the unfamiliar to unsettle readers and critique social ills. Yeah, interesting moment, isn't it? I, I think the world feels a little scary. And then not mm -hmm. to mention, there's just a lot of this kind of uh, myth and folklore already in Latinx culture a lot. So it just makes a lot of sense to me that it would give rise to a, a style of genre telling and uh, storytelling. So it is also, yeah, like you mentioned, particularly interesting that women writers are the ones to traverse the more shadowy corners of this space, uh, probably in light of restrictions on women's rights and rising gender violence. So I, I love it. I love that we're talking to Isabel about all of this today. Uh, one particular novel broke through in the US in 2021 called Mexican Gothic. The author was Silvia Moreno Garcia. Uh, and that book takes place in a decaying English manner, as many Gothic novels do. It's full of psychosexual secrets, lavish aesthetic, and a sense of deep emotional constraint. So what's not to love about that? <laughs> uh, you know, since the manner is an English manner in Mexico, too, it also critiques colonialism. Uh, so this is something I'm interested in uh, Isabel's take on as well. So there's just a lot here. There's so much in this genre uh, because the Gothic novel has been interested in thinking through questions of colonialism and empire for a really, really long time. Yeah, it's interesting because the genre holds these interesting tropes. Um, and just to name one, you know, a standard Gothic plot is that there is a country house or a manor 
and it's full of the evidence of old money, but that money is gone now and the house is crumbling and isolated and far away from everyone and everything, you know, kind of a world unto its own, but it's hiding something. So the Gothic plot is naturally about borders and border crossings and about the terrors of the other and about wealth and exploitation and plunder and shifting power dynamics, you know. So it lends itself naturally to, to metaphors about colonialism and empire, and and it's actually done that since the the 18th century as i've read and um yeah it's just interesting that it has that kind of long uh legacy that seems very timely today timely and so good moment for resurgence uh and i love something specific about uh, isabel Cañas is how specifically she's centering her work in time and place and in her case it's uh the work is set in the aftermath of the mexican war of independence um the first book the hacienda uh, and then the second book uh which is called the vampires of el norte takes place in the 1840s and in both cases these books are on the borderlands you know like you said so they have these you know moments that are just rife for exploring symbology. Uh, and she describes her work as speculative fiction, suspense, and definitely gothic. Uh, so it's fun to look into those distinctions as well. And, and I mean, we have to throw horror into there as well. The New York Public Library actually traces the roots of gothic fiction to Horace Walpole's 1764, The Castle of Otranto. <laughs> uh, I read online, the battle between humanity and unnatural forces of evil, sometimes man-made, sometimes supernatural with an oppressive, inescapable and bleak landscape is considered to be the true trademark of a gothic horror novel. So it's interesting, Grant. I mean, we're, I love that we're kind of delving into this. It's a subgenre, really, but also such a popular one. Mm -hmm. Gothic romance, which can have a happier ending, does tend to focus on relationships in peril. So it follows that gothic horror would focus not only on romantic relationships, but also on other personal and sometimes external demons. Uh, and then, you know, we all know the book that launched A Thousand Vampire Stories was Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, that gave us one of the more memorable and mesmerizing gothic figures. Uh, and it's, of course, been made into many, many films as well. But there are so many other classic examples, right, including Frankenstein by Mary Shelley and more modern gothic novels like Crimson Peak by Nancy Holder and Guillermo del Toro uh, and The Low, Low Woods by Carmen Maria Machado. So, Grant, I'm curious, what do you think of this whole rising very specific genre within a certain subset of writing. I mean, it's clearly a thing. It's clearly a thing. Um, you, you know, at the same time, trends are interesting because I never quite know how truly pervasive they are or if they're being manufactured by journalists who need to write a story. And we actually talked about the limits of, of some of these broad categories uh, with Isabel when we were talking with her during our interview. And and it made me think when I, when I graduated from college, magic realism was, you know, kind of the thing or the entry point for Latin American literature uh, on a very broad level. And in Latin American literature at the time and the magical realism came out through authors like the Colombian writer Gabriel Garcia Marquez, the Cumid poet uh, Jose Marti and the Chilean writer Isabel Allende. 
Monday, just to name a few. Um, but Isabel has some really interesting takes about when a broad category is applied to authors who, who are from different countries and different cultures. So, so listen in for that during the interview. And essentially, though, just to talk a little bit about magical realism, because I think it relates to, to, to gothic fiction, is the magical realism features magical elements set in a realistic environment. You know, it's this fusion of fantasy and realistic story. So magical realism, I think of it as maybe a kissing cousin to gothic, um, because gothic is much darker. And a, a lot of writers say they take their their inspiration from the you know dictatorships and terrorism of the late 20th century and the poverty and violence of the you know region's modern cities. So it's it's interesting to me, I guess, in the end, how world conditions actually inform a genre and and help a genre evolve. Because sometimes I don't think we think of genre like that. And I recently read this quote by. Steve uh, Rasnick Tem and Melanie Tem, who wrote this great short story called The Man on the Ceiling. And they say, I write dark fantasy because it helps me see how to live in a world with monsters. And we're <laughs> definitely living in a world full of monsters. So I'm just thinking how appropriate Gothic is as a tool to see and understand those monsters. Right. And monsters as analogies, right? I mean, monsters mm -hmm. as stand-ins for real life monsters um, is just great to think about in terms of anyone wanting to dive into this space. Uh, but today is the research show, apparently, Grant, because I did have to dive into a little bit of deeper research and understanding about this genre that I don't spend all that much time in. Um, and I wasn't too surprised to learn that there was a slew of 18th and 19th century Gothic novels that can be read as responding to England's polarized debate about slavery and the colonial practices that came with it. And the critic Andrew Lachlan McCann said specifically, Gothic reveals the repressed of colonization, collective guilt, the memory of violence and dispossession, the struggle for mastery in which the insecurity of the settler colony is revealed. And so, like we said, it's real life monsters you know, masquerading in fiction as anything you want. Yeah, like you, Brooke, I, I really love the research portion of this episode. Um, you know, because I, I was, you know, of course, familiar with the genre based on stories like Dracula, but I wasn't as uh, aware of, of of the contemporary takes like Isabel's novel. And, and you know, while I was doing research, for instance, I encountered this word global gothic, all one word, and it sees the gothic as a global phenomenon with specific manifestations in, in particular uh, territories. And so, you know, I was just interested in how the Gothic has, has definitely provided this interesting way to critique uh, region-specific colonization, authoritarianism, and patriarchy. And so I just think it's going to be interesting to see where this leads. And, and even, you know, because dystopian fiction has become so prevalent, I'm kind of curious if it'll supplant dystopian fiction as a genre that, you know, maybe it's uh, maybe Gothic is perhaps a better lens to reflect our times. Yeah, what an interesting take. And I'd kind of like that myself. You know, dystopian stuff is obviously, you know, great in a certain way, but it's so, so depressing. And some of this like gothic stuff just has these exciting elements, you know, there's a little bit of horror injected into your veins, which is not such a bad thing for this time of year. Uh, you know, after all, I think about all of our houses becoming a little bit more haunted in the October and November season. <laughs> so uh, let's continue to explore that with Isabel Cañas after this short break. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. 
We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back, everybody. I am so excited to welcome our featured guest, Isabel Canas, to the show. Isabel is a Mexican-American speculative fiction writer and the author of two novels, Hacienda and the Vampires of El Norte, which just came out. After having lived in Mexico, Scotland, Egypt, Turkey, and New York City, among other places, she has settled in the Pacific Northwest. She holds a doctorate in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations and writes fiction inspired by her research and heritage. Welcome, Isabel. Thank you so much for having me, Grant. This is really an honor. Yeah, it's a treat for us, especially mid-November, like it is uh, when many people are struggling with the muddy middles of their novels. Yep. I'm right there with them. (laughs) (laughs) I am too, yeah. Well, I'd I'd love to start by reading a quote from Esquire about the Hacienda to kind of ground listeners in the the gothic genre and talk a bit about how your research and heritage have influenced your fiction. And so, so here's the quote. There have been several recent attempts to unshackle horror from its white European roots. In 2020, Mexican Gothic blew the doors off with an unambiguously Latinx take on the domestic Gothic story. This year, Isabel Cañas' The Hacienda is even more successful in relocating and recontextualizing the haunted house. Latin Gothic has made much headway in the last few years, and The Hacienda is at the very forefront of the charge. So I was wondering if you could talk more about how you see your writing being related to that Gothic tradition of storytelling and the form it's taking now. Yeah, so I love that quote because, like, isn't all of literature struggling to unshackle itself from the white tradition? (laughs) You're right, pretty much. (laughs) But when I was a teenager, I loved gothic fiction. A lot of times people ask me, like, what is your, like, coming up into horror? Like, when you were a young person, did you read a ton of horror? And I'm like, no, actually. The answer is that I was reading Dracula under the desk in school. Mm. (laughs) You know, I was super, super into Wuthering Heights. Like, all of that stuff just really really struck a chord with me. I loved the atmosphere. I loved the angst. I loved the drama. Um, I loved Poe. I even like when we had to read the house of seven Gables in like junior year English class, like I even enjoyed doing that. And I, I think the first short story I ever wrote was also an assignment for that class where in 11th grade, where the teacher was right, like write a Gothic story. And I did. And I remember my sister's boyfriend reading it and gasping at the end because of the twist. And I was like, the drug has hit. (laughs) I'm never going back. This is it. But when I wrote the Hacienda, I did write it very much in conversation with that tradition. I think when I was preparing to write the Hacienda, I reread The Haunting of Hill House like twice. Uh, the, by Shirley Jackson. It is yeah. a classic of haunted house literature. It's a classic of Gothic literature. I also read Rebecca. Um, I think I had started reading it in high school and like let it fall by the wayside. But reading it as an adult, I was so struck by how angry it made me hmm. <laughs> because I became deeply frustrated by how the narrator, who is never named, so the new Mrs. Uh, Max de Winter, is a bit of a pushover. And so part of my writing my way into this tradition very consciously involved being in conversation with that protagonist. I wanted to write somebody who would fight back somebody who in this kind of like household name kind of house, like Manderley, like Hill house, you know, picked up her guns and was ready to walk out shooting. So I was very conscious about where I was in the tradition, what I was doing similarly and what I was doing differently. 
there are a lot of really classic haunted house tropes that appear in the hacienda like ooh the cold and very classic gothic tropes like <laughs> ooh the you know the mysterious widower who happens to have a lot of money and you know suspicious family members and then the setting is completely different to what i think most readers are accustomed to I love that, Isabel. And, uh, you know, the author's journey is never a straight line, of course. Uh, you said the Hacienda represented a sharp career strategy shift, one that then the Vampires of El Norte has followed. Uh, so I wanted to ask you about this because you and your agent had sent out two YA fantasy manuscripts mm -hmm. uh, before the pandemic, unsatisfactory results on those. Then you decided to change genres. And so I just would like to hear more about that. And then also I, when reading about you, there's really like a blend of genres you seem to straddle, which are like speculative fiction, horror, gothic. So maybe you could, are those all the same or how do you characterize it? Oh, those are two really fun questions to dig into. So first of all, um, I fantasy has always been my bread and butter. As a young person, before I came to the Gothic, I was like the kid who was extremely and excruciatingly into Lord of the Rings and Tamara Pierce and all of that stuff. And so my first two manuscripts and the, the first manuscript that got me my agent were young adult fantasy. And we did have two very frustrating bouts on submission with those manuscripts. I received a lot of rejections, as many authors do. But the thing that really got under my skin, and I think got under my agent's skin as well, was how sometimes these rejections were a little coded. Like the first manuscript was not Mexican enough, you know, for a Mexican author. And then the second manuscript was not it was too much. It was too Mexican in some ways. And so I kind of threw up my hands and I had this moment at the tail end of my honeymoon. Actually, my husband and I were in Mexico City and I had the, I have this very clear memory of being in the lobby of the Museum of Anthropology in Mexico City, which is this like big echoey chamber, mind you. I received this email from my agent saying that we'd received a rejection on a revise and resubmit for a big five publisher that I had spent six months working on and that I was sure I had knocked out of the park. And I burst into tears. Mm. <laughs> I'm not a crying in public kind of gal. I'm very secretive. I'm very private. I'm a Scorpio to the core. And I was just bawling. And my husband, you know, sat down with me and he's really great at pep talks. And so he kind of gave <laughs> me the, let's get back in the saddle pep talk. And he said, look, you've told me you have these two projects on the back burner. One of them is adult fantasy. And the other one is like this haunted house book that you've kind of been toying with that's set in Mexico, which one of them, you know, he knew <laughs> because it was October. He knew that NaNoWriMo was coming up and I was going to dive into one or the other. So he was like, okay, let's pick and let's start like just chatting about it. And I remember sitting there and feeling very bruised. And I thought, Am I allowed to curse on this show? <laughs> I was like, screw this. You can I do that. Screw right, this is fine. Yeah. Screw this. Um, I thought, screw this. I need to try something new. And so I started working on the Hacienda that night. So for me, turning to horror was both a reaction to a very discouraging career situation but also a homecoming in a way, because in addition to loving the gothic as a teen, I did gravitate towards fiction with darker themes. I really loved Holly Black's Tithe as a teen, which, you know, had somehow squirreled its way into my extremely conservative Catholic school's library. So <laughs> props on whatever librarian let that one in through the cracks because it just rocked my world. But I, it, it felt writing the Hacienda felt first and foremost, like writing a book for me and not for the person I thought publishers wanted me to be. 
And so that is why I think it was the one that took off because it was for me the most raw and vulnerable that I had ever been in writing a book. And one thing I really love about horror is how it demands that the author be vulnerable. And I think it was the first book where I really succeeded in doing that. That's such a great story, Isabel. I love actually collecting rejection stories, especially when they have happy endings like that and lead to someplace better. Thank you so much for telling us that. And in the, I'm going to move to the uh, vampires of El Norte. And, and, and in this novel, the vampires, you know, they serve as an analogy of the avarice of American settler colonialism. And I, I know that your vampires uh, were also inspired by the legend of, I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce this right, but El Cacui, mm-hmm. the scary boogeyman that exists in Latin American, as well as other uh, blood-sucking beings of Mexican folklore. <laughs> so I was wondering if you could, could tell us more about your take on this and uh, and what are the main elements that particularly characterize Latin American Gothic, I guess? Yeah, so this is like, this is two very big questions with two very big answers. But first and foremost, my vampires were inspired in part by a quote that I found from a 19th century Mexican rancher and politician called Cheno Cortina, who is sometimes called the Rio Grande Robin Hood because of his outlaw slightly outlaw practices, I believe in the 1850s and 60s, uh, before even, in South Texas, which is where my mom's family is from. And he was a contemporary of the events that occur in Vampires of El Norte, maybe not the actual vampires, but of the Mexican-American War. And he saw his home, he saw a border basically move over his head and found himself, like many others did in this part of the world, a citizen of a new country, not overnight, but basically overnight, over the course of months. and. One thing he did was write, he believed that Mexican citizens of the United States were being treated very badly, which was true. And so he wanted to inspire them to rise up and fight back. And one thing he wrote that was published in a newspaper was a rallying cry for the Mexican citizens of Texas. And he wrote of the Anglo settler colonizers who were coming in and mistreating Mexican inhabitants of that part of the world. He wrote, vampires in the guise of men, came and scattered themselves among the settlements because um, your industry and your success basically sparked the avarice which led them. Mm. And like when I say my jaw hit the floor, I mean, I was like crawling around on the ground trying to find it to pick it back up because I thought, you know, I wanted to write a vampire novel. See also like me reading Dracula under the desk in high school. It's always been a part of my DNA. I think vampires for many writers need no introduction for how powerful they can be as images as avatars for a lot of things that trouble us as people, um, for the monstrous aspects of humanity. But this in particular, I was worried that I was shoehorning the vampires into this setting because I, in my research, uh, reading folklore from South Texas, I came across a lot of witches who like to suck blood, a lot of, you know, there's Chupacabra, El Cuco is known. It like kind of floats around urban legends and Latin American folklore. He walks in different Uh, shapes. He wears different faces. He has different aspects to his boogeyman-ness, depending on who you ask. But then I read this quote and everything kind of fell into place. I was like, wow, I am totally not shoehorning vampires into the setting. If a man living in this setting used the term vampires to describe exactly what I was hoping to get at. So that for me was really powerful, a really powerful moment. But your question about the Latin American Gothic for me has... 
as we're recording this, it's Latinx Heritage Month in, in the United States. Right. And so it is the time of year where media outlets look up and remember, oh, yes, Latinos live in this country. Let us ask them questions. And so I found myself um, this year and in previous years, and I'm sure in the foreseeable future, answering a lot of questions where I'm asked to represent an extremely large and diverse group of people, um, not just Latinos in the United States, um, but also Latin America writ large, which kind of leaves me uh, with my, again, jaw on the floor. Uh, because for me, I'm Mexican-American. I lived in Mexico City as a kid, but I've spent the majority of my life in the diaspora. And for me as an artist, that raises a very specific set of questions, questions of identity, of language, of uh, I'm writing from a seat of colonial power as a member of a colonized group. And so I that really influences my writing. I think about forced assimilation in a certain way. I think about religion in a certain way. And that deeply influences my fiction. My characters in the Hacienda, for example, are both people who feel very much neither here nor there, um, who feel in conflict with two sides of their identities. And that is very much an aspect of having lived in the diaspora my entire life. If you look at the gothic horror fiction that's coming out of Latin America these days, um, and there's a lot of it, and it is fantastic. It grapples with different questions because writers from um, Argentina, from Colombia, from Mexico, like they live in different countries. <laughs> you know, they have different experiences with 20th century American imperialism, with colonialism, with language, with identity, with their, their own political problems that are having happening in those countries. So for example, if you look at the work of one of my favorite writers, Mariana Enriquez, her book, uh, her Gothic horror opus, Our Share of the Night, grapples with the legacy of the desaparecidos, uh, the people who disappeared under Argentina's right-wing military regime in the 1980s. So when it comes to, quote unquote, the Latin American Gothic, I think it should be bifurcated into Latinos in the United States and not everyone else, but like writers who are writing from specific backgrounds from different countries, because there's a lot that we share, but there's a lot that we don't share. It's like most categorizations. It really oh, yeah. fails in the end. It ends up being like either a media or a marketing tool. And there's, as you, you excavated so many different layers and nuances to it, which your answer is just wonderful for my own edification, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you touched upon all this, you know, the diaspora and the different, you know, the, the sort of broadness, but I actually wanted to ask you about the very specific, you know, because you specifically said you have roots in South Texas. Mm -hmm. And so can you speak just to like the, like what were some of the very personal elements? you know, that you bring to this genre? Oh, and specifically to Vampires of El Norte, I think I was, I really brought my family into this book. And when I sat down to write it, I felt, you know, I try not to be woo about my writing process. Like I'm a NaNoWriMo junkie. I'm a plotter to the core. Like I demystify this process for myself daily. But there is also a little bit of mystery in it that kind of seizes my hands and takes them moving across the keyboard, whether I like it or not. And I think that very much came to the fore in this book because it just, the first draft poured out of me and it, the setting came to life so naturally and the family dynamic on the ranch came to me so powerfully and the voices of the characters just, I, you know, my little type A brain just can't square it. And I think that's because um, for the first time, I really delved into um, a setting that's very specific 
to my family and my family background. So my mom was born in San Benito, which is in South Texas. Like the very, it's like a little tiny itty bitty speck on the map in the tiniest, like little southernmost part of Texas. And she grew up in Harlingen, which is a slightly bigger speck on the map right next to it. Um, The biggest nearby town uh, for for context is Brownsville. And the events of uh, Vampires of El Norte take place right there. And so I often would text my mom and my aunt. We had a little group chat where I'd be like, okay, so, you know, my mom moved away in college and kind of never went back. And so I was raised uh, kind of all over the map um, and never like live, lived in South Texas. So I would text my mom and my aunt and be like, okay, so I want this thunderstorm to happen for vibes um, because what is Gothic if not vibes? And (laughs) I want it to happen in May because that's when the book takes place. Is that possible? And if so, what would it be like? And I would get blocks of text back, like little essays about like the way the air would feel, the build of the storm, the flora, the fauna, like, are you going to have wild hogs? You don't have enough mosquitoes. Like your characters need to be really mosquito bitten by the end of this book and stuff like that. And so the voices of my and experiences of like my mom and my aunt are very much infused in the setting. And then the characters themselves, the family dynamics to me are the most, I'd say, honest part of this book. I think Nena's experience specifically in her family struggling with the patriarchy, (laughs) as we all do, um, but struggling with a very specific kind of uh, Mexican machismo and Mexican (laughs) patriarchy is a big part of her arc. And that definitely came from the heart. And finally, I remember asking my grandma, like, okay, I sat down with her and my grandpa at the kitchen, their kitchen table. And I was like, lay it on me. What are the spooky stories? Give it to me. And they were like, yeah, yeah, la Llorona, of course. And I said, what about El Cuco? What about El Cucuy? And my grandma said, you know, yeah, there were like stories about El Cuco when I was growing up. But if my dad really wanted to scare me, he would say, your mother will hear about this. And that just like, for me, drove home, like, how important the family dynamic is to my characters because yeah, the speculative element is of course important to my novels, but I think the stakes don't only lie in the speculative in this novel. The stakes are very close to home for Nena and for Nestor. The stakes very much involve their families and the way that they will live their lives. That's great. Isabel, we're going to switch gears to your writing process a little more deeply. And I appreciate all of the words that you've, you've already said about NaNoWriMo. Um, in an email before this interview, you wrote, I don't know if I would have ever finished a novel without NaNoWriMo. So I'm just curious, what, what role did NaNoWriMo play in your writing process? Yeah, so this will be my 10th NaNoWriMo. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so we're it's a big anniversary. I've done NaNoWriMo and every year since 2013, and I failed um, every year but 2013. So when I was in my 20s, I was one of those people who I journaled a lot. I read a lot of poetry. I wrote a ton as a kid. In college, I traveled a lot and had, you know, college preoccupying me. But I was always one of those people who wanted to be a writer whose dream was to be a career writer and who didn't do a whole lot of writing novels (laughs) and writing tack. I think I stumbled across NaNoWriMo on Twitter by accident. I was like, Oh, okay. Well, you know, I've got this code for Scrivener, whatever the hell that is. Let's, let's have, let's have a whack at it. And for the first time I had a daily writing practice for the first time I was chasing a specific goal. And for me, 
for the first time, I had something and I finished something. And what NaNoWriMo taught me were skills that I use every single day as a novelist. I use sprints. I calculate, okay, well, my deadline is X day and I have Y many words to write. And so let's divvy it up. And I have this number of words to write each day. These are very basic skills, but without NaNoWriMo, without the experience of having tackled that for the first time as a little baby, 23 year old, I don't think, I, I think it would have taken me a whole lot longer to figure out how to do the thing. I think one of the most powerful things about NaNoWriMo is that it really encourages you to finish, to not just hit 50,000 words, but to finish a draft. And for all the people who say that they want to be writers, there's an even smaller portion of them who actually write and an infinitesimally smaller portion of that who finish books. And if it weren't for NaNoWriMo, I don't know how I would have gotten there or when. So thanks, guys. <laughs> That's great, Isabel. And yay, NaNoWriMo. And you wrote a great blog post as a NaNoWriMo coach last year outlining four tips for success. Mm -hmm. So in closing, uh, what advice do you have for writers to get through this particularly tough part of writing? <sighs> the middle of the month is always the worst, especially for those of us in the US, because we're looking at the calendar and we see Thanksgiving on the horizon and we're like, <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> it's coming. I keep a lot of like miscellaneous inspirational quotes on my desk, like on extremely ratty, old, um, bleached, sun bleached, uh, index cards. I'm holding one up. And one of them that I wrote down many years ago, I have no idea where it comes from. So please, if anybody hears this and knows, DM me on Instagram, because <laughs> I want to know, but the quote is there will always be reasons to stop, find a reason to finish. And so when you're in the middle, it is very hard to see the forest for the trees. And it's, the temptation to stop is very powerful. So I encourage writers to find their reason to finish. Not reason can be spite. I have finished <laughs> novels out of spite before. I think, I believe I finished the Hacienda out of spite. Um, the reason can be escapism. The reason can be anything, but find it, maybe write it down once or twice or a dozen times and look at it every day. That's so great, Isabel. Thank you so much. I think having a purpose and intermission, even if it is spite, that can be motivating. Spite is deeply motivating for me yeah. on a daily basis. Yeah, let's just remember that. Thank you for observing that. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That was a treat. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. Well, Brooke, we, we joked a bit recently that every week the book trend could be about Amazon or AI, and it could be, <laughs> but we're going to branch out, and uh, we promise to bring you all non-Amazon and non-AI trends from time to time, too. And, and this week, we're looking at the debate over celebrities and their ghostwriters, which is a topic that elicits a lot of feelings in people. And most recently, uh, Millie Bobby Brown of Stranger Things fame has gotten quite a lot of blowback on social media for her novel 19 Steps. And the main issues seem to be the fact that her ghostwriter, Kathleen McGurl, didn't get cover credit. And also just generally that Millie Bobby Brown is young and rich and famous and it bothers people when people like this use their privilege to seemingly buy themselves something uh, that other people have to work really hard for. You know, I, I'd love to just kind of farm out my novel ideas, for instance, Brooke. But uh, <laughs> what, what, what are your thoughts on this topic? 
Yeah, I'm definitely in the camp who thinks that Millie Bobby Brown should have given her ghostwriter credit on the cover, a hundred percent. You know, she's talking about her, posting about her, so it's not like it's some secret that she used a ghostwriter. Uh, and in the Guardian piece that covered this story, McGurl, the ghostwriter, openly shares that she wrote the first draft with notes and research from Millie Bobby Brown and her family. So I can imagine that Millie and the family were like, look, this is a cool story. It is. You know, it's the story mm-hmm. Of Millie's grandmother, uh, who experienced the 1943 Bethnal Green tube disaster, which happened in World War II when 170 people were fleeing from an air raid in London and they were crushed to death inside a tube station. Terrible story. You know, maybe good premise for a novel. Uh, but the story is Millie's and her family's, right? I mean, in essence, it sort of belongs to them because it belongs to her grandmother. But Millie, who's 19 and not a writer, couldn't have written the novel on her own, clearly. Uh, So I guess, you know, I think people are tired of the way that celebrities insert themselves into literally everything. (laughs) You know, books are just the tip of the iceberg. And they're influencers, right? So they're in fashion, they're in perfume, they're in every single self-care product you can imagine. Uh, And obviously, you know, and I, I think I share this perception, it's like they don't have to work for those things. I mean, they are celebrities. So, you know, Millie is a great actress. Um, but I just think it's triggering, you know, when it feels like you're already a movie star. So why do you need, you know, X, Y, and Z? Yeah, I totally agree with everything uh, you said. And I, I just want to mention a conversation we had uh, just before recording this episode. You know, I brought up the fact that that there is somewhat of a tradition of this with big name celebrity authors, for instance, like James Mishner developed a factory type of approach for his big sweeping bestsellers back in the seventies. And I, I believe a number of genre authors do this now. And I I don't want to slander anyone, but I think maybe James (laughs) Patterson has writers who work for him. I could be wrong, but it's, I guess I'm just saying it's not entirely uncommon among celebrity authors to do something similar, but Brooke, you wisely uh, pointed out they have earned their credentials. (laughs) They're, Mm -hmm. They're authors. They're, they're not 19 year old uh, celebrities who are, are hiring people to write their novels for them. So it's a little different. And in your, in your text talk, Brooke, you, you, you talked about the celebritization of book publishing and noted it as a reason for leaving traditional publishing, at least in some measure. So we're talking about ghostwriting on the one hand, but it's, it's a broader issue because ghostwriters are facilitating this phenomena. And I'm wondering if you think the rise of celebrity, the celebrity book, you know, whether it's self-help memoir or fiction is, is actually shutting out other writers. Yeah, I think the answer is yes, but it's hard to quantify because a lot of things are shutting out other writers. It's not just that. It's the consolidation of book publishing that's shutting out other writers. It's the industry's obsession with author platform and brand that's shutting out other writers. Uh, You know, it's the sheer number of people writing books and wanting to get published that's shutting out other writers. So we can't blame everything on celebrities. Um, And plus, it's a two-way relationship, right? In the sense that celebrities want to author their books, whatever those books are. And publishers see that as a total cash cow and opportunity to be affiliated with whatever celebrity author. So they're feeding one another. Uh, And it's understandable that normal people and especially aspiring authors would find this trend very annoying. Uh, I find it annoying and found this kind of thing annoying as a young editor, you know, when I was working at Seal Press, because you get a book pitch from someone, you know, like a Millie Bobby Brown, and it kind of doesn't matter what the story is because the publisher is like, yes, we'll take it. And then the ghostwriter will make it so... Uh, And it's kind of ironic, you know, because I have this hybrid business model in which authors invest in themselves, which means, you know, they pay the publishing costs. And over the years, we've just gotten, you know, 
less so now, but certainly commonly, uh, this idea that we're vanity publishing. And yet I can't think of anything more vanity than the partnership between a publisher and a celebrity to publish a debut novel that is really just about leveraging a celebrity's name. You're right, Brooke, and a very good point. You know, I think it relates back to the people in power get to write the history all the time and determine what's vanity and what's not. So that's really good that you're pointing out that angle. And I I thought the Guardian article uh, made a good point in the form of a quote from the ghostwriter Shannon Kyle, who said, the general public wants to be entertained by a book. They want to read a good story. And ultimately, whoever puts it together, I don't think they really mind. So I'm curious, do you agree with that? You know, I do agree with that. Yes, I think the people who get riled up here are aspiring authors who are finding that their own stories are not getting traction while someone like Millie Bobby Brown gets to cut the line because of who she is. And she hasn't been working for her craft or faced any of the rejection that these people have faced. You know, it's tough out there, as you know, as we know, we're not all starting from the same starting block. And that's for sure. So, you know, that said, I do think the reading public wants to read a good story. Yes, we believe that that is your story, listeners, especially those of you who are doing NaNoWriMo right now, the story that you're working on, the story that you're building and dreaming and toiling over. Uh, You know, we hope that you are doing it, just executing tons and tons of words. Grant, I know that we are (laughs) in some future iteration of self. I know I am writing tons and tons and tons of words. Next week, uh, we'll be back with more inspiration for this month of NaNoWriMo. So thanks for listening, everybody, and write on. 